The Battle of Agincourt, fought on the 25th of October 1415, was one of the greatest military victories the English ever achieved over the French. Despite being heavily outnumbered, an English army under King Henry V and consisting mainly of archers achieved a stunning victory, killing up to 8,000 French for the loss of 400 of their own men. Actually, what with Trafalgar on the 21st and Agincourt on the 25th, October isn't a good month for the French in battles, but it is for the English. The victory at Agincourt played no small part in the development of English identity. Plucky English yeoman farmers humbling the mighty French nobility. An image of England standing up to its enemies, no matter how outnumbered, and immortalised in William Shakespeare's play Henry V. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. So as today is the anniversary of the battle, let me tell you the story of Henry V and the Battle of Agincourt. 25th of October, 1415. The Battle of Agincourt was fought during the Hundred Years' War between England and France. Now, you want to get to the battle, I want to get to the battle, so let me just give you a very top-line explanation of that war. During the Middle Ages, the kings of England held various lands in France as vassals of the French king. And over the years, through marriages and wars, their holdings ebbed and flowed. In the 1340s, during a succession crisis in France, Henry V's great-grandfather, Edward III of England, claimed that he was the closest male to the French throne through his mother, the dead King of France's sister. The French disagreed, stating that the royal line only passed through men, a rule that didn't exist in England, making Edward's claim invalid, and they chose the King's cousin instead. Edward, believing that he'd been diddled out of his rightful inheritance, went to war. He and his son, Edward the Black Prince, achieved crushing victories at Crecy and Poitiers, but couldn't take the whole of France. Edward died, still claiming that he was the rightful king, and his successors carried on that battle cry and the war for a hundred years. Hence the name of the war. Young King Henry V came to the throne in March 1413, and almost immediately revived his great-grandfather, Edward III's, claim to the French throne. For over a year, Henry V of England and King Charles VI of France negotiated. Henry offered to drop his claim if the King of France ceded Anjou, Brittany and Normandy to go with his current holdings in Aquitaine, and that he would not need to pay homage for those lands. In other words, they were his and his descendants, and not the French kings. He also demanded the hand in marriage of the king's daughter, Catherine, along with a dowry of two million crowns. The French countered by offering Henry additional land in Aquitaine, and a dowry of 600,000 crowns for marrying Catherine. The intransigence of both sides resulted in increasingly acrimonious relations. William Shakespeare incorporated this tense moment in his play Henry V, when the son and heir of the French king, the Dauphin, sent Henry a barrel of tennis balls. The enraged Henry informs the French that he will turn the tennis balls into cannonballs. Finally, in August 1415, he declared that the time for talking was over, it was now time for war. This is where international affairs and home politics come together, because Henry didn't just want a war to become King of France, nice though that may be. He also wanted a major military success to shore up the legitimacy of his claim to the English throne. Not everyone thought he was the rightful king, not least in the ruling Plantagenet family. This whole situation is another rabbit hole that I don't want to go down, but suffice to say, that Henry's father, Henry Bolingbroke, had usurped the throne from his cousin, Richard II. Not only were the people in England and the royal house aghast that he'd nicked the throne and been crowned King Henry IV, 
but they also questioned whether his House of Lancaster were the obvious alternatives to Richard. Others had equal, if not better, claims, not least the House of York. Thus, Henry V could really do with a victorious war in France to increase his popularity and stamp his authority on England. Leaving Southampton on his flagship, the Trinity Royal, at the head of an army numbering somewhere between 12 and 16,000, he arrived off the port of Harfleur in Normandy on the 17th of August. At the time, Harfleur, close to the mouth of the Seine, was one of the most important ports in northwestern France, with a population of upwards of 8,000. Interestingly, that's roughly its population today. It was protected by a strong wall which incorporated 26 towers and three gates. Despite those walls, it only had a garrison of 400 men, plus some able-bodied townsfolk, to hold off Henry's English army, which had now been enlarged by the sailors from the invasion fleet. Nevertheless, the French did hold off the English for just over a month. Eventually, Henry had to use his ten cannon to weaken the defences before the garrison finally capitulated. The victory had been a costly one for the English. Possibly 1,000 men had died in the attacks, but worse still was that double that number had died from dysentery. Anywhere up to 5,000 men were also invalided home, including the king's brother, the Duke of Clarence. But the siege of Harfleur had not only cost Henry in men, it had also cost him time. Summer had passed, and with the advent of autumn, the fighting season was coming to a close. All he had to show for his campaign was a captured port. The English king now proposed marching his diminished army through Normandy towards the English-held port of Calais. Members of his council advised against it, but Henry was determined to salvage as much as he could from this campaign, even if it was merely PR. By marching through Normandy, he would be both reinforcing his claim to the lands held by his ancestors and showing that he didn't fear the French. He sent a message to his governor in Calais, Sir William Bardolph, to advance south and secure a crossing over the River Somme as he moved north towards him. On the 8th of October, the English army set out from Harfleur. Having had to leave a garrison to hold the port, King Henry's army consisted of just 900 men-at-arms and 5,000 archers. Arriving on the south bank of the Somme, they found no sign of Bardolph and his army from Calais. What they did find was a French force guarding the crossing. Henry was forced to move upriver further into enemy territory to try and get across. And all the way, he was tracked by a growing French army on the opposite bank, which blocked every possible crossing point. Eventually, Henry made a dash for the next ford and crossed before the French had caught up. Having outsmarted his pursuers, he now turned northeast and marched towards Calais and safety. Before I go on, if you enjoy my work, then sign up for my free weekly newsletter so you don't miss my latest releases. There's a link in the description. Anyway, back to the story. On the afternoon of the 24th of October, when he was about 30 miles from the safety of Calais, a man-at-arms galloped up to the English king. Daffid, or David Gamba, was a Welsh supporter of Henry's father during Oenglandua's Welsh rebellion against the English. Now, he reported that a huge French army was blocking the road ahead, near the village of Azincourt, or to use its anglicised name, Agincourt. When Henry asked exactly how big the enemy army was, Daffid came out with a brilliant description. Enough to kill, enough to capture, and enough to run away. Did that really help Henry V? <laughs> I don't know. But soon enough, he could see the enemy force with his own eyes. And it was huge. 
Medieval records are never very accurate. I mean, why would you care how many peasants were there? And chroniclers were notorious for playing a bit fast and loose with the exact numbers too. And that's certainly the case for the French army at Agincourt. While some chroniclers claim it was 30,000 plus, most modern scholars tend to go for a figure of 10,000 men-at-arms and 5,000 others, such as crossbowmen, archers, local levies. There does seem to be some dispute as to whether servants were included in those figures. As each man-of-arms would have had at least one servant, there could well have been some 10,000 more men in the French army, although their fighting skills and use would have been very limited, and they would have remained at the back, effectively out of the battle. There is more agreement on the size of the English army, at around 900 men-at-arms and 5,000 archers. So, whichever figure you go for with regard to the French, the English were outnumbered by at least 2 to 1, but more likely 3 to 1, and potentially even more. Trapped in enemy territory, 30 miles from safety, heavily outnumbered, it seemed that this was Henry V's last stand. As darkness fell, there was an air of resignation in the English camp. They had walked 260 miles in 16 days, it's about 15 miles a day, in the rain. They were wet, they were tired, and their food supplies were running out. Many were still suffering from the effects of dysentery. Some of the archers' boots had worn out and they were marching barefoot. And in the distance, they could see the fires of the French camp twinkling in the night. Thousands of fires. The sound of laughter and singing drifted through the air. The French were already celebrating. And now, just to cap it all, it was raining again. Just like it had been for the last two weeks. The following morning, the 25th of October, 1415, on the Feast of St Crispin, the two armies formed up. Henry commanded the centre of the English army. To his right, Edward Duke of York commanded the right wing. Edward Duke of York was his father's cousin. His claim to the throne was every bit as strong as Henry's. Many in England felt that he should be the rightful king. Prior to leaving Southampton for this war, York's own brother had been executed for plotting against Henry. York himself was exonerated, and here he was, fighting for the King of England in a battle to the death with the French. Meanwhile, Henry had given command of his left wing to Lord Comoys. Each of these three sections consisted of men-at-arms, armoured and carrying swords, shields, and in some cases axes. Beyond each flank, and also positioned between Henry's centre and his wings, with the bulk of his forces, English archers under the veteran warrior Sir Thomas Erpingham. Now aged 58, Erpingham, who hailed from Norfolk, had accompanied Henry's father on crusades in the Baltic, fighting alongside the Teutonic Knights. The huge French army was commanded by the Constable of France, Charles d'Albert, the Comte de Dreux. In his late 40s, he came from an old Gascon family and had served as the king's right-hand man for almost the whole of the previous decade. His army consisted of the flower of the French nobility, all here to teach the English a lesson once and for all. And as they looked down the hill towards the English, they knew their numbers would carry the day. They knew that the English arrows could not penetrate the latest armour that many of them were wearing. This would be no repeat of Crecy or Poitiers. The biggest problem for the Constable of France was the very size of his army and the narrow front upon which they would attack. For on both sides of the ploughed farmland separating the two armies were woods. In other words, they couldn't make their numbers count 
nor could they easily turn the English flanks. Nevertheless, his sheer numbers would simply steamroller the English. He organised his army into three lines, or battles. Alongside his vanguard, the first line, he placed mounted knights, who would charge and smash through those English archers before they could inflict too much damage. There's an old phrase, don't count your chickens before they hatch. The constable, along with the rest of his army, had been counting them a bit too much. Firstly, rather than his army neatly separating into its three lines, there was a disorganised and anarchic scrum as nobles ignored the constable and desperately tried to position themselves in the front line of the attack. It's a bit like when I used to play football in the school playground. Everyone wanted to have the glory of scoring goals. Next, in that stampede to be in the front line, the nobles had pushed their crossbow men and archers further back, thereby ensuring that they could play little role in softening up the English. And finally, Charles Albrea had not factored in the ploughed clay field. The clay field that had been rained on for the last two weeks. Meanwhile, Henry addressed his men. The king restated that they were fighting a just cause, that he was the rightful king of France as well as England, and he reminded them of their past great victories. That speech was immortalised by Shakespeare in his rousing Band of Brothers speech in the play Henry V. <laughs> Unfortunately, the words were the Bard of Stratford's, not the king's. Still, it must rank as the greatest motivational pre-battle speech never actually given. Some sources later claimed that Henry also warned the archers that the French would cut off the two fingers they used to pull their bowstrings. Legend has it that this threat by the French resulted in the English archers showing them their two fingers defiantly, and an insult was born. Others say the same thing happened at Cressy 70 years beforehand, and others still say it's just an urban myth. But it's a great story, which most Englishmen want to believe. And whilst Henry probably wished he had delivered the Band of Brothers speech, he nevertheless received a battle roar from the English when he'd finished. Then, in a defensive move that surprised the French, he ordered his army forward. The English army, with trumpets blaring and with their banners flying, only advanced a little way, just far enough to bring the French host within the range of their arrows. He also secretly moved some of his archers into the woods on either side of the narrow battlefield. Finally, in the late morning, after much jockeying for position amongst his nobles, the Constable of France was ready and he ordered his cavalry to charge the English archers. And this is where things started to go wrong, and the French snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. First off, the organising of the French lines had taken so long that many of the cavalry had got bored and wandered off. So when the charge was sounded, considerably less than the 1,000 knights that the constable had earmarked for the charge actually galloped towards the English lines. Secondly, those who did charge came up against something brand new in Anglo-French warfare. The English archers had driven sharp wooden stakes into the ground in front of their positions, at an angle pointing at the advancing cavalry. Back at Cressy and Poitiers, the archers had relied on pits and the nearby men-at-arms to protect them. Try as they may, the French cavalry couldn't get at the archers, and all the while, the archers fired at them from close range. Since those earlier victories, Armour had got stronger, so the knights were better protected. But their horses weren't. Dying horses tumbled to the floor, often trapping their riders underneath them. Other riders were simply thrown from their horses. Wounded and terrified horses went out of control, many charging straight back towards the French vanguard, which was now moving forward. Or at least, 
it was trying to move forward because the French men-at-arms were marching through a muddy, ploughed field wearing suits of armour weighing something between 60 and 80 pounds. It was hard going to say the least and they really didn't need hundreds of their own horses charging towards them as well. And then the sky turned black. The English archers had released their first salvo of arrows. Thousands of arrows fell on the advancing French. Let me just pause and share with you just how lethal the English longbow was. Whilst bows and arrows had been part of English battles for hundreds of years, it was Edward III who had grasped the power of using them en masse, and the English victories at Crecy and Poitiers were principally down to the English archers. The English longbow, normally made from yew, stood at just over six feet in length. Archers trained from the ages of seven or eight so that by adulthood they could master these huge weapons. The draw on one of these longbows was about 140 pounds. Archaeological research on skeletons of archers shows many had deformed shoulders and twisted vertebrae from drawing their bowstrings under such pressure. Yet, when they could master it, an English archer could hit a target at 250 yards, about 230 metres. Going into a battle like Agincourt, they would carry about 60 arrows, which they stuck either in their belts or in the ground in front of them. The latter storage option also enabled them to wee on the arrows, thus making them not just deadly, but infectious too. But above all, the English archers were fast. By the time of Agincourt, they could fire at a rate of one arrow every five seconds. That's 12 arrows a minute, at a time when the crossbowman could let off one bolt every two minutes. That rate of firepower wouldn't be seen on the battlefields of France for hundreds of years. In fact, they worked so fast that the archers used to cut their hair short to avoid it getting tangled in their bows and the hemp bowstrings. Field Marshal Montgomery mused in his book, A History of Warfare, that maybe this was where the British military started their tradition of short haircuts. Who knows? So let's get back to those French men-at-arms, heaving themselves through the mud, sometimes sinking up to their knees, as the English archers let fly. It's estimated that in the opening minute, there were something like 60,000 arrows in the air hurtling towards the French. Whilst the latest armour offered a lot of protection against arrows, even they had vulnerable points, such as around the eyes and the mouth. And with that many arrows descending on them, the odds of being struck in the face were pretty high. Thus, the French men-at-arms were forced to pull down their visors and bend their heads forward to protect their faces. But that drastically cut down their vision and hampered their breathing. Now they started to stumble over dead and dying comrades and horses. And once they fell over in that mud and with that weight of their armour, they struggled to get up. Accounts claim many drowned in the mud. The vanguard finally reached the English lines. They were utterly exhausted. The English men-at-arms fell on them. They were joined by the archers, who, throwing their precious longbows aside, waded in with swords, daggers, lead mauls, which are hammers, and even the mallets they'd used to drive in their wooden staves. The Battle of Agincourt descended into a muddy melee. As the French vanguard were locked in battle with the English, the second line of their battle joined the fray. Or at least they would have, if they could get near the English. But on that narrow front, hemmed in by the woods, all they could do was add their weight, rather like a giant rugby scrum, to try and drive the English back. However, all they did was exacerbate the growing crush in the French lines. They were so tightly packed that many of the French couldn't even wield their swords. Men were suffocated in their armour. Others fell and were simply trampled to death. 
and now those English archers in the woods joined the battle, attacking the French from the side. It was mayhem. King Henry was in the midst of the fighting, leading his men from the front. At one stage he saw his younger brother, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, go down under a French attack. He fought his way through the throng and stood guard over his brother, fighting off the attackers. In the process, a French duke smashed his sword or axe down on the king's helmet, smashing off a piece of the gold crown adorning it, before himself being killed. After about two hours of fighting, the Battle of Agincourt was turning in England's favour. Hundreds of exhausted, dehydrated French were simply surrendering. Up on the French hill, their third rank wavered. It's still not clear how many of this reserve were fighters and how many were servants. But Henry was worried they could still join the battle, maybe joined by reinforcements like the Duke of Brittany with his 6,000 men who was somewhere out there marching to join the army. It was around now that the baggage train at the rear of the English army was suddenly attacked by a force of mounted soldiers under the local lord of the manor, Isambard de Agincourt. Whether he was acting as part of a wider plan or simply taking the opportunity to pillage has never been clear. But to Henry, this was the first part of an encircling tactic that would involve that French reserve. And he had a problem. He had as many French prisoners as he had exhausted English soldiers. What if those prisoners suddenly seized the countless weapons lying about on the battlefield and joined in this new attack? Henry made a highly controversial decision, even by the standards of the day. He ordered the prisoners to be killed. His army were aghast. Many saw it as contrary to chivalry. Others saw the opportunity to get rich by ransoming the important prisoners disappearing. The resentment against his order was so widespread that he could only enforce it by threatening to hang anyone who refused to obey his order. Whether Henry really wanted to massacre several thousand prisoners and whether his army could really have done it is open to conjecture. Maybe he simply wanted to terrorise the prisoners so they didn't even think about rejoining the fight. As it was, the French reserve had seen enough carnage for one day and withdrew from the field. With the battlefield his, Henry ordered the killing of prisoners to cease. Historian John Keegan estimated that maybe only about 200 of them had been killed. Nice for the majority, but not if you're one of the 200, I guess. The Battle of Agincourt was one of the most comprehensive victories the English ever achieved over the French. Somewhere between six and 8,000 French soldiers had been killed. Over 100 of the great lords of France lay dead on the muddy field, including three dukes, nine counts, an archbishop, yes, they did used to fight, and the constable of France himself, Charles d'Albert. It was so devastating that it would take the French nearly 15 years to recover. In return, the English had lost somewhere in the region of 400 dead. Their most significant casualty was Edward, Duke of York. Henry and his exhausted but elated army marched on to Calais and the king returned to London in triumph. The victory at Agincourt brought forward a surge in English patriotism and cemented his legitimacy on the throne. But it did something more. It helped mould the English identity. A spirit of the plucky underdog sticking their two fingers up who would keep fighting no matter what the odds. It continues to be part of that national character to this day. In 1419, he returned to France and occupied Normandy. And the following year, he signed a treaty with King Charles VI of France. Henry would indeed marry his daughter, the 19-year-old Catherine. Far more importantly, Charles agreed that upon his death, the crown would pass not to his son, the Dauphin, but to Henry and his successors. Just two years later, Charles died 
and the King of England was proclaimed and crowned King of France in Paris. But it wasn't Henry who was crowned. In a cruel twist of history, he had died just two months before Charles, at the age of 36. But what if Henry had lived? An incredible what-if moment in history. But now he lay in his tomb in Westminster Abbey, and thus it was his son from Catherine who became King of England and France, the ten-month-old Henry VI of England. He was the only English monarch ever to be crowned King of both countries. But a baby king could not lead an army, and the French saw their opportunity. Enter Joan of Arc. The French fought back and over the next decade swept the English out of all of their French holdings except for Calais and the Channel Islands. The reverses helped set in motion a chain of events that led to the outbreak of the Wars of the Roses, where Edward of York's nephew, Richard, led the House of York against Henry's House of Lancaster. And what of Henry V's bride, Catherine? She was just 20 when he died and her 10-month-old son sat on the throne of England. She was young enough to marry again, and she did to a courtier from Wales. His name was Owain Tudor. And their grandson would one day sit on the throne of England too, Henry VII, father of Henry VIII and grandfather to Elizabeth I. But that, as they say, is for another day. Well, thanks for joining me today and I hope you enjoyed that story. For less than the price of a coffee a week, you can support me and keep my podcast ad-free. In return, you'll get access to exclusive supporters-only episodes. Click on the supporter link now and thank you to Mickey, Luke and Jennifer for signing up already. I'm Chris Green, the History Chap. Thanks for your support. Keep well and I'll speak to you again very soon.